Welcome to another episode of Fear Not, the podcast that tells us why we're afraid of all the wrong things and oblivious to what can actually kill us. Our trending fears this week? Dog licks cause deadly infections. Biking to work is a death wish. That horrible baby shark song on a continuous loop all night long. Remember hands at 10 and 2? Now it'll break your wrists. Barry's fear of the week, pulling a Neil deGrasse Tyson. And of course, our regular feature, Fear Florida. That and so much more coming up on Fear Not. Today is gonna be a good day. Don't care what anybody else say. Oh, I don't need a budget cookie to tell me the way I'm feeling. Gonna be a good day. A good day. Welcome back to Fear Not. It's episode 12, A Dirty Dozen. I'm Alonzo Bowden here with Dr. Barry Glasner, the world's foremost expert on fear. Hey, welcome back, Alonzo. And uh, where you been? I was in Tampa, and fortunately I did not run into a Florida man. <laughs> and this Friday, uh, the 23rd, my special is premiering on Amazon Prime, Heavy Lightweight. Yeah. Yes, yeah. my comedy special's coming up, so that's all good. And next week, I am, I'm going to Toronto, I'm doing a show, and I'm going to look into staying. Just in case, I just like to keep my options open. Apparently, the authorities don't listen to this podcast. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm headed right after the show to New York. Um, I'm going to be on Brian Steltler's show this weekend, which is called Reliable Sources on CNN. So listen to that, and on his podcast with the same name, Reliable Sources. And so I'm practicing up until I get there to try to be reliable. Uh, and I also uh, recorded a piece for Jim Jeffries that our producer says is scheduled for September. Isn't it easier to be an unnamed source than a reliable source? <laughs> it definitely is. Um, but the reason we're here is to be reliable, right? And funny. I don't know. I could use an unnamed source to start some rumors, get my career going. It's going pretty well, it seems to me. <laughs> All right. We are here to debunk fears. And the reason to do that is because people are manipulating us, wanting us to be afraid for their own reasons so they can sell us stuff and get us to vote the way they want us to do and all that kind of thing. And we also want to thank our listeners more and more every single week. Uh, I think uh, what I saw is that our audience doubled last week. So keep telling your friends to listen to us and uh, like us on your platform of choice. Give us five stars. Yes. And keep sending in your questions because we love that. You can send them on Twitter at Fear Not Official or you can email us at fearnotofficial at gmail.com. And while you're there, please click the subscribe button. We get a lot of great questions from listeners. In this episode, we're going to devote ourselves to answering at least a few of them. So let's get this thing started. Headline number one from a listener named Peggy in Vermont. She has a fear while driving. She learned to drive with her hands at 10 and 2 but she read that 10 and 2 is now dangerous because of airbags. Take a listen. Hi guys, so here's the deal. I trust Consumer Reports, and recently I've read that there is the new quote-unquote safe position for hands on the steering wheel. It's the 8-4 position. They say because if you position your arms higher up in the old 10-2 positions and the airbag, God forbid, deploys, it'll break your arms and burn them. They call it being degloved. Ugh. 
So yeah, so then a week or so ago, I received a regular newsletter from Consumer Reports and I watched a video which a guy had a race car driver giving some guy safe driving tips. The driver, I think his name was Ace, specified the 10-2 position was best. What to do? Control the car better and risk the horrible airbag pain and disfigurement? Or what? What do you think I should do? Thanks guys, confused in Vermont. Degloved, ooh. You wonder what that means? Well, let me give you a tip. Don't look it up if you're squeamish. It's like the Terminator, but a lot more blood. It means they're ripping all the skin off, leaving the muscle and bone exposed. That's scary stuff. That is something to truly be scared of. You know, I used to teach comedy traffic school, and I've gone to a number of high-performance driving schools. So I think I'm somewhat qualified in this area. The important thing to do is keep your hands on the wheel and off of your phone. <laughs> All right, so it's one thing if you're driving a performance car, right? It's another thing if you're driving my car, right? Because I just have a regular car. It's a Lexus, but it's a regular car. Now, the truth is uh, I quite often drive with one hand. You know, I'm, I, I do that. Sometimes my hand is at the top of the wheel. Sometimes my hand is at the bottom of the wheel. Okay, so you know enough about all this stuff to know what happens if the airbag goes out, right? So do you worry when you're driving with one hand? No, because I don't drive worried about the airbag exploding. No no disrespect to people who do. I, I am a defensive driver. My, my defense is not protect myself from the airbag. My defense is avoid a collision. Right, right. Barry, one hand, two hands, uh, one hand on the phone. You want the truth? Yeah, be honest. I have no idea. I heard we were going to do the story, and I said to myself, I don't know where my hands are, so I'll get back to you next week on that. I'm not really sure. I know one thing. When I only drive with one hand, I think this is a bad idea. I should be driving with both hands. That doesn't mean that I end up driving with both hands. I don't drive with both hands just thinking about that because I'm too busy with the radio and all that other kind of stuff. That's not driving. That's aiming the car. <laughs> right. Not, honestly, right. and that's what most people do. Most people aim the car. They they aim it down the middle of the street or they you know keep it in a lane. Or <laughs> Fortunately, so far, I have a good driving record. I haven't had any crashes. So, okay, confused in Vermont. Here's what we know about airbags and about the risks associated with the hand position. All right, it's definitely a real thing, but it's a real thing for a good reason, for a reassuring reason, because cars are a lot safer now, partly because of having airbags in the steering column. But the higher up on the wheel that your hands are, then the more likely you are to be directly over that plastic cover when the airbag deploys and you get the results we've just been talking about because airbags, they're like uh, controlled explosions, you know. Uh, they use the super hot nitrogen gas and they propel the bag at something like 150 or 200 miles an hour. And then anything in front of them when that happens, when they go off, is likely to slam right into your face so the hand position and how you grip the wheel while you're turning with today's cars definitely affects your chances of injury. And speaking of injuries, the National Highway Safety Authority and AAA, they both report that the injuries include all kinds of things. It can be amputation of fingers or entire hands, traumatic fractures, broken noses, concussions, even eye injuries because, you know, you could be poked, not to get gross here, you could get poked by a flying finger that would be your finger. Well, that is true, but the airbags save lives too, you know, so, so it's like 
okay, yeah, there's a risk of you burning your hands or breaking your fingers, but that's probably better than your head ramming into the steering wheel at full speed or into the windshield or, or whatever. So I guess that's one of those risk-reward situations where, yeah, there's a risk of injuring your hands, but you'll be alive. I know people whose lives have been saved with airbags. Um, it wasn't real pleasant for them, but it, it, it definitely helped them and saved their lives. It gets very confusing for us regular folks who don't think about driving the way you do and, and, and a lot of other people do because there's conflicting information. The guidelines just conflict with each other and they're confusing. Let's listen to some of that Consumer Reports video that our listener Peggy was confused by. If you can improve your driving skill, that could actually save your life. I don't think you're going to catch any problems with me whatsoever. Perfect driver. First of all, where are your hands? Oh no. Already? So what do you think is right? This one. Like this. Both hands on the steering wheel. Absolutely. Uh Kind of the the nine and three are a little bit higher than that. You're going to be more able to deal with any emergency that arrives. Yeah. So see, even the pro right there said nine and three, a little bit higher, but not as high, you know, not all, not at the top of the wheel. And it's because when you rotate the wheel, you have the most rotation from that position. If you imagine your hands up at 10 and two and you rotate with both hands on the wheel, it's much more limiting. So nine and three allows you the most control. And the deal is if you learned how to drive before about 1990, I think it was, then you learned 10 and two and that's just not right anymore. Most sources do say nine and three, some say eight and four. I work with a lot of numbers. I can't keep all these numbers in my mind, frankly. But some sources that we found are actually pretty flexible on the exact positioning of your hands. So don't get too freaked out about it. Another source said lowering your hands reduces some control over the car. But the thing is, improved electronics and braking, all kinds of other features in the cars mitigate most of the loss. And most important, always wear your seat belts. They're the thing that make the airbags work in the first place. First of all, if you're not wearing seat belts at, in this day and age at this point, we can't help you. I'm going to give you some advice, Peggy. If you're worried about driving, take an advanced driver's course. Now, I'm not talking about learning to drive a race car or anything like that. And quite often, these classes are given at racetracks because it's a controlled environment. They can wet the track and help you with driving in the rain, and they can do some emergency braking practice and so on. So there's another thing the experts recommend, and that's how you turn the wheel, and they say that matters. How do you do it, Alonzo? Well, in the old days, they did the hand-over-hand thing, and that's funny to me because I can actually remember the driving film. But what the driving teachers teach now, it's a push-pull technique. So if you can imagine your, your steering wheel as a clock, if your hands are at nine and three and you're turning left, you would take your right hand push up to the 12 o'clock position, then pull down from the 12 o'clock position with your left hand. So instead of a hand over hand, it's a push-pull technique as if you're pushing the wheel and handing it to the other hand and pulling the wheel. And you promised me there's going to be no pop quiz on this segment of the show, right? I don't don't have to remember. No, as long as you keep your license valid, Barry, you should be okay. Now, if you allow your license to expire and you have to go take a driving test... I wish you luck. (laughs) (laughs) One little thing, though. You know, if you're going to take a driving test, be sure that you get it right. Be sure you know what your state requires so that you don't answer the question wrong and flunk. And Peggy, 
in terms of 10 and 2, fear not. Headline two comes from a listener named Roberto who asks this question, says, Dr. Barry, love the podcast. Should we fear our dogs licking us? My wife heard about two people getting bacterial infections that caused them to get limbs amputated. Should we worry? Would love to hear your take on this on the podcast and keep up the good work. Well, first off, thanks for that, Roberto. It's nice to hear some good response. And this story was all over the place. Let's listen. I don't know. It's just so hard to explain. She remembers nothing before waking up in intensive care. You know, being in a coma for 10 days and had this thing and the dog licked me and my dogs licked me all the time. Her dog's saliva forever changing Marie Trainer's life. It was very hard to find out when they first told me and that they had to remove my legs and my arms and some of my hands and it was just something... I mean, what do you do? I mean, very hard to cope with. Barry, before you, you analyze this, I just want to say, isn't that the classic way of delivering a fear story? Uh-huh. Like just with the music and the, the reporter says something to scare you and then the person gives their part. Like this was this was just the exact format of fear, correct? That's right. Look, I feel sorry for her. I'm sure you feel sorry for her, but you're right. This is a classic fear story. So what about you, though? You have pets? No, I don't, but I love animals, and I've had dogs lick my hand and, you know, leg. I've fed them treats or whatever, and so far, no limb amputations. How about you, Barry? You ever been licked by a dog? I know a lot of people who have dogs, and uh, when I go in, they... They come up and they lick me. And uh, in the dog world, this act is a submissive gesture, a greeting. That's why dogs lick you. If anything, I've heard those stories about the dog saliva being good for you, like cleaning, you know. I've heard those stories, which I don't know about. And, you know, the other thing with, with pets, people bring their dogs everywhere. And they bring them. And sometimes... To me, that's not cool. Like if it's in a restaurant, if it's in a grocery store, like I see people walking their dog in a grocery store. I'm not looking from a point that a a little dog's saliva is going to kill you. I just don't necessarily want him licking the apples that I'm going to (laughs) buy. I guess what I would say is I want to know where the dog's been. Yeah, but that is kind of what dogs do. They lick other dogs and then they lick you. It's, It's how they operate. What's going on here? Well, here's the story, all right? An Ohio businesswoman, Marie Trainer, she gets home from vacation. She's greeted by her two dogs. They start licking all over, and she has a small cut on her hand, important part of this story. So her temperature spikes. She's rushed to the hospital. She's diagnosed with sepsis. She's placed in a medically induced coma. Gangrene sets in, and then she wakes up 10 days later to find all four limbs amputated. Horrible stuff. I would say that's scary. But I'm guessing, and, I, you know, I'm no doctor. I know you guys are surprised to hear that, but it's true. <laughs> that it had something to do with her having a cut on her hand. That's right. All right. Here, here are some germ facts about that. There are 700 different types of bacteria in a dog's mouth. See, that's what part of what makes all this sound so scary, 700 of them. Her infection was from a bacteria called Capnocetophaga. It's very common in dogs and cats. 75% of all dogs have it, and more than half of all cats. It's transmitted by saliva or by bites, especially by licking, that's right, an open wound. And 
it is particularly virulent because it attacks the immune system. So it's serious business. Well, this is bad stuff, but again, this is the open wound. So that's what you have to avoid, right? If you have an open wound, you don't want a dog or a cat licking the open wound. Yeah. And you're at greater risk if you have a weakened immune system, for example, from cancer or diabetes or HIV. I should say this isn't the first time this has happened, though. Uh, In 2018, a Wisconsin man had both legs amputated and hands amputated. And I'm told that there's a Canadian woman who got the same infection from a dog bite and lost three of her limbs. So you're at greater risk if you're immunocompromised or, for example, if you have no spleen. You're also at greater risk if you're over 40 and you drink alcohol excessively. Excuse me, Barry, but you just described a lot of cat ladies. I'm just saying. <laughs> okay, so we've learned a whole lot now about this condition, right? But what Roberto asks is if this is something to fear. After all, there are about 70 million dogs in American households. That's according to the American Veterinary Medical Association. People get licked all the time by dogs. I tried to come up with some kind of estimate of how many times. There's no way to do that. A lot, right? So ask yourself, why have we almost never heard about this particular infection? Alonso, do you know anybody who's gotten an infection from a dog lick? This story is the first I've heard of that. Yeah, and that's for good reason. Because there's good news here. This infection is unbelievably rare. According to the CDC, there were a grand total of 12 cases in the last year. No way to estimate exactly how many licks these 70 million dogs have bestowed on their proud owners. But I can say this for sure. Statistically, you definitely have a better chance of ending up in the hospital from falling over your dog than from getting licked by your dog. Even the doctor who treated the guy from Wisconsin said there was nearly zero chance he would get infected again, and there's no reason to get rid of his dog. My favorite commentary on scares in the media about dog licking, which this one definitely is, this was a letter to the editor of a veterinary magazine. She has three children, 10 grandchildren, and 12 great-grandchildren, all of whom were raised with dogs. So this great Nana, she goes on to make a really important point. I'm going to quote this. The denial of a dog in the family of a growing child holds more psychological danger than the remote risk to health by infection from dog to child. And then she went on to say that when her kids went to school, they came back with coughs, colds, measles, whooping cough, chicken pox, head lice, and pinworms. All of those are human diseases that were caught from other children, not from dogs. And then she says, I would rather let my dog lick my face than kiss Aunt Matilda with her poorly fitting dentures. Wow. That's a rough one on Aunt Matilda. (laughs) I'm just looking at cough, colds, measles, whooping cough, chicken pox, head lice, and pinworms. That sounds like our entire next seven episodes. (laughs) I'm going to turn it over to the doctor now. Barry, what do we do? I'm not that kind of doctor, but this is common sense stuff. Just take precautions if you have an open wound, right? Or if you're immunocompromised. And, you know, this is why you should put Band-Aids on cuts. There's some solid advice for this episode of Fear Not. And, you know, if you're not going to put a Band-Aid on... Don't let the dog lick you. And if a dog licks you and you have an open wound, wash it. Put antibacterial creams on it. And if you start to feel feverish from this or anything else serious, get to the doctor right away. Okay, Barry, dog licking. Fear or fear not? Fear not, but keep it clean. Down to Florida. 
We welcome you to the Sunshine State. That music means it's time for Fear Florida. Take it away, Alonzo. Florida City playing Baby Shark and raining tacos on loop to drive the homeless away. (laughs) West Palm Beach, Florida, not to be confused with Palm Beach, home to Trump's weekend getaway Miralago, which is just across the intercostal waterway. Now, wait, 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 wait. I thought we weren't going to have Trump in this episode. We have to just say something, so we threw that in. Okay. Okay. West Palm is having a homeless problem. Seems the homeless are fond of a large patio at a place called the Lake Pavilion. It's a waterfront banquet hall. It's used for weddings, bar mitzvahs, and charity functions. The laws in West Palm don't currently allow the police to remove the homeless from this area. So as a way to gently coerce the transients to move along, the folks of West Palm Beach are blasting two songs on a loop all night long. Now, before we play them, Okay, we're going to warn you, if you haven't heard these two songs and you hate the Barney theme song, this might be worse. Okay, you've been warned. Here comes Baby Shark. Okay, now that was bad, but they're going to make it worse because they're alternating it with this song. It's raining tacos from out of the sky. Tacos, no need to ask why. Just open your mouth and close your eyes. It's raining tacos. I'm not sure telling homeless people it's raining tacos is going to get them to leave. They might be hungry. I'm just saying they might be hungry. Yeah, these songs would drive, not only would these songs drive you nuts, but these songs would get in your head and continue to drive you nuts. I don't think you're going to comfortably lay out on the pavilion and take a nap with the baby sharks coming at you and it's raining tacos. So what you do is cross that waterway and go to Miralago. I did not say that. I did not officially say that. Imagine working there, right? You know know what I bet happens to the workers? And I wonder if this happens with the homeless. Sometimes when you hear something like that in the background all the time, you stop hearing it. You just literally tune it out. So I wonder if the maintenance people are just like, no, I don't even hear the baby shark. No, this song's too bad. They hear this song. What are the rest of the facts on this thing? The Lake Pavilion is a glass-walled venue that overlooks the waterfront. It hosts hundreds of events a year, expected to bring the city, now this is important, $240,000 in revenue, right? So it's a big deal. According to the City Director of Housing and Community Development, Jennifer Farrell, it has been effective and it's a temporary measure to make the area accessible for those who have rented the facility and for future events. As a way to distract us from the idea that they are torturing the homeless, she protested. We're not forcing individuals to stay on the patio at a pavilion to listen to the music. The music's heard only if you're on the patio, a very small area relative to the rest of the waterfront. Here's the thing I don't get, right? She said that they're trying to make it more appealing or accessible to people who rent the facility. <laughs> I mean, so... If I come to visit the facility because I might want to rent it, do they turn this off and play some really nice music that I like? No, no. I think what they do is when you have an event that none of this is going on. But what they're saying is that if people are out there sleeping and living there, when you have the event, 
you know, you'd have to walk around them. I think they're looking at it, hey, we're making a quarter million dollars a year renting the facility, and we don't want homeless people sleeping around here. So we're going to play two of the most awful songs that you can imagine to keep people from this one area where we're making money. They clearly didn't listen to our shark story on the previous episodes, you know. They, they, they could take care of this another way. I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm tending to think, and I'm a man who can't swim. I might want to try my luck with a real shark versus listening to the baby shark song <laughs> on a continuous loop. Now, lest you worry that this may ruin your next visit to West Palm Beach, Ms. Farrell pointed out that the endless loop of baby shark and raining tacos is only temporary until the city formalizes official hours of use that will help enforce trespassing laws. Okay, if you really want to torture people, and I'm not talking about me. This song is not torture to me. To me, it's one of the funniest songs I ever heard. But just Google and check out the first drink of the day. Fear Florida. The first drink of the day. The first drink of the day. The first drink of the day. Headline three comes from a listener named Mark right here in L.A. His coworkers think he has a death wish because he bikes to work. Here's what Mark writes. Hey guys, so I ride my bike to work. It's about seven miles through LA. It varies from protected bike lane to regular busy streets. My coworkers are convinced I'm gonna die. I'm not so sure it's terribly dangerous. What do you think? Well, I, I can speak to this one. I've ridden bicycles. I ride a motorcycle all the time. It is somewhat dangerous riding a bicycle in LA because cars have no respect for you on a bicycle. Even when you're in the protected bike lane, it could be dangerous. In a battle between a bike and any other moving vehicle, the bike is likely to lose. And between a bike and a stationary object, the bike loses. So, you know, any way you cut it almost, it's, it's a danger. The worst thing is that some people, and I recently, I was at, at an event and this woman said that bicycles shouldn't be on the road because they don't pay a registration fee. Mm. I'd never even heard that. Like, that blew my mind when she said it. But as far as she's concerned, bicycles shouldn't be allowed on the road. Bicycles are, by law, vehicles. They're allowed to be on the road. Mark, pay attention. Keep your eyes open. I don't think it's a death wish. I think it's, you know, I think it's dangerous, but I don't think it's a death wish. It's clear that this can be made safe. All you got to do is go to many places in Europe. I, I mean, I'm in Amsterdam periodically. I'll be there at Christmas again. Everybody's riding bikes, and it works out fine. Okay, I just want to say one thing, though. When it comes to other countries, it is different because they're used to riding bicycles. See, in the U.S., and particularly in L.A., people aren't used to using a bicycle as a commuter vehicle. In Amsterdam, if you're walking, you're liable to get run over by a bicycle, but bicycles are much more common in those places. So here he's a bit... He's a bit unusual not completely but a bit so um, road conditions in the u.s are getting worse they're not getting better it makes it more dangerous for bikers drivers in the u.s are not looking for bikers it's it's not a pretty picture but there's some good news too the health benefits of bike riding far outweigh the health risks a researcher at the health effects institute in dc told the Washington Post that while injuries rob casual cyclists of about five to 10 days of life and air pollution subtracts between one and 40 days, the benefits 
of bike riding add three to 14 months to your lifespan. So that's a pretty good trade-off. Here's what, here's what uh, the expert there said. Exercise has not only huge cardiovascular benefits, it also helps against depression and other mood disorders. And finally, when it comes to fatalities, bike accidents are not actually the most dangerous way to travel. Motorcycles have that distinction by far. Motorcycle fatality rates per 100 million trips are 536, roughly. By comparison, the rate for Bicycle deaths is 21 per 100 million trips, a lot less. Yeah, and again, that makes sense. I mean, a motorcycle has an engine on it, and that makes it a little more dangerous. Also, motorcycles, you probably have more uh, operator error crashes than bicycles, and, and you crash at a higher rate of speed. So that doesn't scare me. I mean, I know there's danger involved in riding a motorcycle. I think the the dangerous thing with bicycles is you don't have the speed, you don't have the power to get out of the way. And people don't notice you. You have a very small profile. People look right through you. They, you're in front of them, but they don't see you. They see the car behind you because mentally they're conditioned to look for other cars. That's why they hit bicycles and motorcycles. They turn right into you. You're like, I was right in front of you. And they honestly didn't see you there. Now, I'll tell you one big difference with bicycles versus motorcycles. Most bicyclists aren't wearing the safety equipment that, that motorcyclists wear. You know, right. I mean, I have right. I have jackets with padding built in with, you know, and, and a motorcycle helmet is a lot stronger than a bicycle helmet. And hopefully you're wearing a bicycle helmet. I know you look like a dork, but you need to wear it. But to answer Roberto's question here, we need to look at the rest of the stats beyond what we were talking about. Remember, bikes had 21 deaths per 100 million trips. So what about pedestrians? About 14. Drivers, that's occupants of passenger vehicles, 9 per 100 million. Okay? And super safe, super safe is buses, less than one half a person per 100 million trips. This is what's interesting to me about your stats, Barry. It seems the less fun a form of transportation is, the safer it is, right? So motorcycles are lots of fun. They're dangerous. <laughs> Bicycles are fun. They're less dangerous. Walking is can be fun. It's definitely entertaining. You know, driving in a car, riding a bus, the most boring, worst way to travel. Yeah, it's the safest way to travel, but that's no way to live. That's a very good point. We Walk. often trade fun for safety. That's right. So to restate for Roberto's co-worker, if you drive to work, about nine deaths per 100 million trips. If you bike, about 21 per 100 million trips. So from a purely statistical standpoint, you're more likely to die riding a bike than riding a car. But that's not the end of the story in L.A. You know, we're getting we're building infrastructure for bikes. It's been coming along. Uh, the plans for the 2028 Olympics include making it a whole lot more bike friendly. But there's a lot of bike-friendly areas already. Uh, that's thanks in part to an organization called Ciclovia that has created all kinds of biking options in L.A. and has special events. So uh, shout out to them. The city passed a new plan where they'll add about 1,600 uh, miles to the, to the bikeway system that exists now. That'll happen, presumably, they say, by 2035. So, Mark, if you have a little patience, help is on the way. I say, Mark, enjoy your bike ride. Keep your eyes open, wear your helmet, 
wear, wear reflective clothing or reflectors so that cars tend to see you more and keep riding your bike. Barry, you're the expert. Here's the question. Biking to work, fear or fear not? You got it exactly right. Fear not, but wear your helmet and watch the road. It's time for Barry's fear of the week, but this time it's personal. Yeah, it is personal and it came from a listener. So I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that many of our listeners are going to also fear this, if not now, at some point in the near future in their own lives. This is from a listener named Helen who emailed me about a controversy that happened the week of the double massacres in El Paso, Texas and Dayton, Ohio, and it was over a single tweet. So let me set the stage for this. There were two shooting tragedies. In El Paso, 22 people were killed, dozens injured, and a 15-year-old was the youngest victim. 13 Americans, at least eight Mexicans were killed. In Dayton, 32 seconds from the first shot to the last shot, there were nine people killed and 27 people wounded. The morning after the second shooting in Dayton, Neil deGrasse Tyson tweeted the following, quote, in the past 48 hours, the USA horrifically lost 34 people to mass shootings. On average, across any 48 hours, we also lose 500 to medical errors, 300 to the flu, 250 to suicide, 200 to car accidents, 40 to homicide by a handgun. Often our emotions respond more to spectacle than to data. And he definitely got slammed, especially on Twitter. Shannon Watts tweeted this. She said, cold take, Neil. 200 plus Americans died from gun violence in the past 48 hours. Now, Shannon is the founder of Moms Demand, and that's a great organization that's pushing for sensible gun laws. I support it. But these are just typical of the kind of response that Tyson got. Well, and, and it's very interesting this came up because I was on Joe Rogan's podcast and we were talking about this right after it happened. Neil deGrasse Tyson is a scientist. He's stating facts. And what Neil deGrasse Tyson, I think what happened is as a scientist, he didn't realize that while his facts are accurate, his timing was off. That's not something you say the day after two massacres. It's not that he got the statistics wrong. In my opinion, his timing was horrible. See, like I said, this is a sensitive thing for me because any of us who do this kind of correcting of the facts or putting things in perspective, like, you know, you hear me do all the time on this podcast, there's a possibility that we're going to make the same mistake he made. I'm going to give you my thoughts on that whole thing in just a minute. But first, let's hear the question that we got from our listener. All right. Here's how she put it. Here's how Helen put it. She says, do you agree with Dr. Tyson? I listened to your podcast and what he said sounds like he's doing what you do on your show in terms of throwing out facts against fears. At least it does to me as a math teacher. I teach high school mathematics and full disclosure, I'm a big fan of Dr. Tyson. I know he caught a lot of criticism for his timing and all, but what about the statistics he gave? Are they right or wrong? I'm going to stand by my statement and I guess what she's saying, that it's the timing. The timing was wrong. See, what gets left out in these kind of discussions a lot, and it's a big problem with social media and how people respond, is the apologies he gave the next morning and some things he'd said earlier. He said, 
The very next morning, as an educator, I personally value knowing with precision and accuracy what reaction anything that I say or write will instill in my audience, and I got this one wrong. He said, what I learned from the range of reactions is that for many people, some information, my tweet in particular, can be true but unhelpful, especially at a time when many people are either still in shock or trying to heal or both. Well, one of the big things I get from that is uh, Dr. Tyson's been hanging around too many politicians because he said it's an apology, but he never wrote, I'm sorry, or I apologize, or, you know, that that's what you lead with. I, if, he, if he said, I apologize for what I said, as an educator, I personally value, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's always good to put in an apology when you apologize. Exactly. Good idea. First off, one tweet stands in for everything. In fact, Tyson has said things in the past, tweeted things in the past, that gun control folks would like. Okay, here's an example from 2015. He posted this, 3,400. That's the number of Americans who died in terrorism since 2001. 3,400, the number of Americans who died by household firearms since five weeks ago. Okay, so, you know, He's he. It's not like he's unsympathetic to what people are concerned about here. The timing is awful, like you said. He should apologize, like you said. But let me turn this around a little bit because I listen a lot to comedians talking about how you can't talk about a lot of things, and they complain. And some comedians won't go to college campuses because you'll get you know people won't like it if you say certain things. So it seems to me. You're in the same kind of boat in a certain way. No, no, I, I don't think so. I think this is totally a, a matter of timing. Now, as a comic, we take the risk of saying the wrong thing, but we're known for our timing. We usually get that part right. And I have to tell you that this is something that I've thought a whole lot about, because when I give talks, sometimes people get upset, and I, you know, I have to figure out what to make of that. They should get upset sometimes because I'm blowing away things that they hold dear that aren't true. But sometimes it's not that. You know, sometimes I say something that just strikes too close to home. You know, like I'll talk about uh, child kidnapping and how extremely rare it is. Yeah. And it's an important point to make because parents aren't letting their kids go to playgrounds and stuff. But if I look out and see that somebody's comforting somebody sitting next to them when I've said that, I move on. I try to get on to my next point, and I try to see if I can remember where that person was sitting and go say something to them afterwards. You can't do that with tweets, though. Well, you know, as a comedian, I hope to upset some people with what I say because right. they tend to remember it more. But the thing about social media and any media, the apology is never read as much as the act that you're apologizing for. Yeah. That's just the way it works. Yeah, that's right. And I don't want to suggest that I'm completely letting him off the hook, because if I put my, my scientist cap back on, uh, you know, there are some other problems with what he's doing, actually. Going back now to the listener's question, he deserves criticism on the selection of the facts. Homicide deaths are only part of the picture. So by separating out suicide, for instance, he misleads... On an average weekend, 200-plus Americans lose their lives to gun violence. But most 
are from suicide and gun accidents. So if he's going to talk about the relative numbers, he's got to figure out which ones to give and to give them right. And by including flu on the list, um, you know, this is what what we in the business call a category error, right? His examples, the other examples, are caused largely by humans, but flu is caused largely by germs, so it doesn't belong on the same list. So it sounds like he's kind of doing the sensationalism thing himself. He's manipulating his statistics for impact. Or he's choosing, and you always have to, right? Because as you probably know, a tweet can only be so long. So he's got to choose, but he's got to choose right, right? Can you mention that to the president? Sorry, did I say that? (laughs) So, Barry, getting back to use of language. Okay, so he on the original tweet, he gave his statistics, and then right at the end, he wrote, often our emotions respond more to spectacle than to data. What if he had left that out? Do you think it would have been better if he had just put down his statistics and let you draw your own conclusion? He probably wouldn't have gotten the blowback because nobody would have paid any attention to the tweet, right? It wouldn't have gone anywhere. But again, his point is a correct one. And it's something that people need to take seriously. We do let our emotions get in the way of rational thinking. But we can't help that. And as people who talk about statistics at a time when people are very emotional, we need to take that into account very seriously. So what you're saying is that he is Spock and most of us are Captain Kirk. (laughs) Okay. I like that. So, Barry, uh, you being a scientist making comments like this, fear or fear not? Definitely fear overzealous commentary to make a point. But, folks, don't ignore the facts. Every week, Barry and his crack research team dig for one final story to send us off with a laugh. What'd they find this week? Well, fittingly, this week's nightcap actually came from a listener. And because of that, I'm not going to make you guess if it's real or made up like we usually do. One of our regular listeners called Gato Girl, uh, and by the way, Gato being French, you know, for cake, She's a cake girl, so of course she gave us a five-star review. Left You'll one have of... to look up cake in that urban dictionary. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here's what she said. One of my favorite reviews from our listeners. She said, I'm a longtime Alonzo fan, and I like the rapport he has with Dr. Glasner in this era when there are so many things to be truly afraid of. I appreciate their humorous take on the state of things. The tag at the end of the review reads, as a cookie decorator, I just wish the theme song didn't diss bougie cookies. Uh, Do you know what bougie means? Yeah. Do you know what bougie means? I think I know what it means, but is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? Barry, bougie can be good or bad. Okay, sometimes someone acting bougie means that they're, you know, kind of ego tripping and they're they're getting too big and that's a bad thing. But what she's saying is she loves bougie cookies. This woman makes bougie cookies. She probably makes some of the most beautiful cookies you've ever seen decorated with frosting and who knows what. The woman's business is bougie cookies and she's hoping we wouldn't diss or insult bougie cookies. Uh, Let's play a little bit of it. I don't know what you hear when you hear that. Uh, I heard, lines. I don't need no fortune cookie. Yeah, that's exactly right. We are happy with bougie cookies around here. So we do not fear 
bougie cookies. We love bougie cookies. And any dissing of bougie cookies will not be done by us. And this is a pro-baker podcast. There we go. See ya. It's raining tacos. If you like what you heard, hell, even if you hated what you heard, hit the subscribe button and tune in every week. Give us a five-star review to help us rise on the charts. And as always, if you hear news stories that make your hair stand on end or they sound like someone is trying to fill you with fear, send them to us at fearnotofficial.com or tweet us at fearnotofficial. And we'll see if we can uh, find the truth. Let us know what you're scared of. Goodbye. Fear Not is a Stone & Company entertainment production hosted by Alonzo Bowden and Dr. Barry Glasner. Executive produced by Scott A. Stone. Produced and edited by Adam Everest. Written by Scott A. Stone, Barry Glasner, and Adam Everest. Alonzo writes stuff too. Don't believe him. Our sound engineer is David I. Legal Beagles, Loeb and Loeb. Crack accountants are 10 key accounting. Special thanks to Gary Brown, Betsy Amster, and Adam's imaginary girlfriend.